co-host Greg Hall. Hello. Hello there. How are you doing today? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing great. It's getting uh, the holiday seasons uh, just upon us. It uh, is. The, it is. the students just finished their finals, and it's pretty quiet around here. You know, it feels like the semester just started, though, right? So it's, yeah. it's, it's but you know what I really like, I'll tell you? Tell me. The parking situation. The parking situation's pretty darn good right now. Take your choice. And the bathroom. No one's in the bathroom. It's great. It's great. <laughs> the campus is all yours. So we are here today with a very distinguished guest, Ruben Ellis, who is our incoming interim dean of the College of Liberal Arts, otherwise known as COLA. Hi, Ruben. Hi. You people in Radio Land can't see this, but Jamie was smiling when she called me distinguished. Oh, <laughs> he is quite distinguished. Wait till you hear. Wait till you learn more about this. So, um, as I just mentioned, uh, Ruben was recently um, uh, we re was recently announced that he's going to be the interim dean of COLA starting January first, which is very exciting. And I was so happy to see that announcement come up come Absolutely. out the other week. And uh, I know you have a lot of plans for the college, and uh, I think as I had mentioned in an email to you that your enthusiasm alone is going to do wonderful things for the school. So we're looking forward to having you in that role, Ruben. Well, thanks very much. And let me say, too, thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of your show, and, and I'm also uh, very appreciative of WU Radio, too. I think uh, it's all just a wonderful contribution to what goes on here at Woodbury. Thanks. Yeah, and we totally concur. We think, um, you know, it's providing an outlet for, for many people, including people who have been touched by the work that you do. Um, we recently had um, the folks from 7500 Magazine on. We've had uh, Jalissa Padilla, who is mm -hmm. a... a uh, one of your students in the writing department. So we, we you know, we've already in our short tenure um, had many people have crossed paths with you. I, I loved Julissa's interview. That was just great. And d you did one with uh, Eugene Elevato too, didn't you? Right, that's we right. Yeah. Wow, you really are a, a fan of I'm our show. Fan. I love it. I love it. And uh, we also interviewed um, Trisha. Trisha Lopez was fantastic. From, from yeah, was uh, Mariah. So yeah. we are getting into all these, um, these students who are taking writing classes. So l let's back up a little bit. Prior to your, your new appointment, you um, were chair of the writing department. That's correct. I was on sabbatical last year and Matt Bridgewater and Rich Madsen co-chaired while I was gone and did a great job and and I came back as chair this uh, this fall and it's been a very busy fall it seems it's just flown by uh, we've been very excited about what's going on in the writing department we only launched three years ago and what we've heard from our students consistently is that they wanted more creative writing to be part of the program and so we've been doing a kind of reboot of some of our curriculum to make sure that they they get what they they want Want. When we were recruiting for the, the major uh, three years ago, uh, we were in the awkward position of trying to invite students to come and be part of a major that didn't yet exist. And in exchange for them trusting us to, and coming to Woodbury, we told them that they'd have a say in what how the major developed and how the department went forward. And they got their say, and what they said was that they wanted more creative writing. And so uh, Linda Dove and the students in uh, the Mariah Literary Magazine have done just a fantastic job of uh, helping to create a culture of writing here at Woodbury, which I think uh, there's real pent-up demand for, and so I'm very pleased about that. And we've been trying to raise the profile of the writing department and the writing major and minor. Uh, we've been quite successful in recruiting students uh, to the minor because they, they see, as we do, that writing is a very good complement to just about any other field of study, any other discipline. So uh, we have fantastic students and faculty in the writing department, and it's just been a pleasure and honor to be the chair over there. And we will, uh, we want to address that issue that you just brought up, the writing, you know, writing as a complement to so many other things. Um, both of us, and I, I think both of us are, mm -hmm. are liberal arts, mm -hmm. um, have liberal arts backgrounds. We both write. Um, we see the importance of that and are big proponents of, of it. And we also, quite frankly, see 
a lot of people who don't know how to write or communicate. So um, it's, it's pretty want, amazing. We, uh. <laughs> we want to put in a big plug for for that for that as well. But let's let's back up a little bit and talk about your <clears throat> own background. Um, we know you're a writer. You're an author. You do, you have your PhD. Talk tell us a little bit about your journey, where you sure. came from, and how you got where you are. Well, it's been a good journey with some uh, some interesting back alleys to it. Um, I I was not particularly interested in writing or literature when I was growing up, and even into high school. But I somehow managed to major in English at college in college, and uh, after that, I had no real in, intention of going on to further my education. I'm uh, immediately after college, I moved to Idaho and farmed and uh, built a log cabin for, wow. uh, for a few years. But that's a very literary <laughs> pursuit. It, it sounds that way from the outside. I think you're right. It sounds pretty romantic. But I raised uh, garlic and wheat and alfalfa up in the panhandle of Idaho and uh, started uh, freelance writing mm. while I was up there as well. I had a little shack behind the house where I did my writing. Amazing. And I'd have, in the wintertime, I'd have to go out there an hour before I wanted to work and get a fire going and get it warmed up. And, uh, wow. So it was, it uh, sounds pretty idyllic, right? I mean, that's a great it was, visual. <laughs> it was very hands-on. Where did you grow up? Uh, I'm from North San Diego County, uh, Solana Beach, actually. Nice. Mm -hmm. But I've moved around a lot as an, as an adult, of course. And at some point, I decided that graduate school was a good idea. Um, and the only reason I didn't go to law school is because I missed the deadline for the LSAT. Uh, but, but that was a good thing. That, that was a lucky thing. It was a lucky, lucky thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just had a wonderful time in, in graduate school. Um, and any kind of liberal arts degree gives people a wonderful platform to go to graduate school, no matter what field they uh, end up going in. And that was the case for me. And uh, I think of grad, uh, graduate school as the time when I learned more, more quickly than any other time in my life. It was just so amazingly stimulating, and I uh, loved every minute of it. So after um, graduate school, then you, where, was, where did you go from there in terms of uh, professionally? What, you know, what was your trajectory from that point? Well, by then I was hooked. You know, I, I started teaching in graduate school. I taught half time and and um, walked into a classroom classroom totally unprepared and clueless for the first time in 1983. And so it's been uh, let me do the math 35 years uh, th this year. Wow. And so it's been a it's been a long good ride. Um, by then, I knew I wanted to teach, and uh, I, my first pos teaching position after grad school was at uh, Hope College in uh, Holland, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Wonderful little liberal arts school, uh, very high standards, wonderful students. Uh, it's, it was really there where I learned to love uh, small institutions. And so when the opportunity to come to Woodbury came along years later, it, uh, it seemed like a good fit. After Hope, I was at Prescott College in Arizona for a few years, too. And uh, that, too, was a very good experience. 500 undergraduates mm -hmm. and a commitment to social justice and environmental uh, conservation. A wonderful little school. I, I sometimes think that uh, Woodbury has the potential to be the, the urban L.A. version of that. Mm -hmm. And that, that might be one of the things we explore with the college in the next few years. That would be great. So did you always teach writing classes? Writing and literature. My, okay. my PhD is in literature studies, um, modernism, American literature, and more specifically, uh, Western and Southwestern American literature. So a lot of my publishing has been in, in those areas. Well, why don't we, why don't we go to that? What, mm. Tell us a little bit about uh, the books that you've written and published. Well, my, my biggest book, I suppose, is a, a book called uh, Vertical Margins, and it's a, it's a study of mountaineering literature uh, from the late 19th century into the 20th century. It's, um, it's an area of, of what's normally considered exploration literature. And so I looked at what uh, climbers and people who were aware of, uh, of these expeditions that were going on all around the world at that time uh, had to say about their experiences and uh, really kind of isolated this quirky little field. It's fascinating. literature. And uh, I've also published a, a fair amount on um, how 
people have reacted to the prehistoric Indian ruins in the American Southwest. Uh, ever since the Spaniards uh, discovered the ruins uh, uh, very early on during the Entrada, um, people have been writing about, the, about them in journals and reports, later in novels, poems, memoirs. And there's a, a surprising, surprisingly large amount that's been written about these, uh, these ruin sites. People tend to see their own lives and times mirrored in the ruins. And so um, just like the, the old poem Ozymandias, uh, when people see ruins, uh, you'll often find them um, seeing that as a warning of uh, what could happen to us. So the nice, one of the nice things about uh, studying that particular area of literature is that it's gotten me out in the field a lot. I, uh, I've spent a lot of time visiting those sites and and taking students out there at, at Prescott, we taught uh, a lot of field-based courses. Mm. They had they had a block system, and so I could take 12, 13 students and pile them and all of their camping equipment in a van, and we'd be gone for a month. And as long as it wasn't too hot out. It was often pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter's at U of A right now, and oh yeah, yeah. I tried. I went up there to move her in in the summer, and I couldn't take it. It was mm. 110 degrees, so. So well, we, well, well. we had some real adventures, you know, going visiting some of the re more remote ruin sites. A lot of different fun things happened. We uh, we were trapped by a flash flood in a canyon once. We spent uh, uh, almost 24 hours up on a ledge watching the water oh, flow by. Oh, my goodness. Very... Um, in addition to being entertaining to hear about, it's also very inspiring. Uh, and I think, in a way... Um, this sort of touches on a little bit of uh, the, the strength of, of a liberal arts education, which is, you know, we, we often talk about Woodbury being sort of a practice-based um, mm -hmm. uh, university with a lot of programs that are, are really designed to, to, to have people enter a certain field, whether it's architecture or animation or filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But... The that experiential and maybe that's not the right word, but that 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 almost atmospheric experience that you get from a uh, liberal arts education, whether it's it's the ability to synthesize information, analyze information, think, <laughs> be thoughtful. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really really critical. Uh, and I, I wonder if maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how important it is, no matter what our students are studying, you know, to get some of that and have some of that rub off on them. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree with everything that you said, of course. I'm a fairly fierce advocate for the liberal arts, and it's going to be fun continuing the work of the College of Liberal Arts in, in making the liberal arts really high profile here on campus. I mean, you have the the practice-based programs and the liberal arts both written into the mission statement of the, the university. And, uh, but sometimes you can forget about the liberal arts here, and we're not going to let that happen. Uh, it's, it's a crucial framework for preparing students for anything that they want to do, career, uh, but also just life, I think. You know, all the old metaphors for the liberal arts, that uh, they produce a well-rounded person by uh, through a diverse uh, array of courses and curricula, or that they produce renaissance persons. These are, these are wonderful metaphors, but they don't really stand up all that well anymore to the 21st century. Uh, we, we're, we live in an era where we have globalism and technology and climate uh, crisis and assaults on democracy and even the, the understanding of truth. Uh, this is a crucial time. And the, the liberal arts are, are the best preparation for people to deal with all of those challenges in, in the future. So it's far more important than just polishing people uh, with, uh, with a kind of cultural literacy. Uh, what it really does is give students a, a cultural competence. I like that word better uh, because it emphasizes the fact that it prepares them to uh, have an impact no matter what they do. If students uh, emerge from our curriculum in the liberal arts with a commitment to impact, a commitment to responsibility, and a commitment to caring, uh, then the liberal arts function has occurred. And, uh, and I think that happens at Woodbury a lot. 
And I think that's one of the things that an opportunity like this to talk to you today gives, uh, gives me a chance to make people more aware of. So, so Ruben, I agree with everything you're saying. Uh, I would like to play the devil advocate's role um, as a parent, mm -hmm. um, having students, my student, come here and say, I would like to study professional writing or mm -hmm. um, as a parent, and they say, well, what are you going to do with that? Um, what would your response be to that? Well, any of the liberal arts fields prepare students to do virtually anything they, they want to do. I mean, we have to remember, uh, devil's advocate, that, <laughs> um, that something like 75%, three-quarters of CEOs surveyed say that a liberal arts education is the best preparation for going uh, into any field that the student works, including the corporate world. And so it's pretty widely recognized, surprisingly, that the liberal arts are this wonderfully sound platform for what students want to do. Um, but the perception sometimes isn't there among uh, prospective students and parents. Mm -hmm. um, I, have had, I have two sons who've gone through the liberal arts experience, and one of them is now an architect, which has a little bit of bearing in, um, in uh, Woodbury, and the other one is in business. And I think I see in, in their actions professionally and just as adults that, uh, the role that the liberal arts and that kind of broad preparation has, has played in their lives. You know, the, uh, I, I mentioned my mistrust of those old-fashioned metaphors of, for the liberal arts a minute ago, but I have a new one because I do like metaphors. <laughs> And uh, I was at one point in my earlier life a fairly avid mountaineer. And so the metaphor that I'm really drawn to about the liberal arts is based on mountain climbing and mountaineering. And so you remember that in traditional siege climbing, like when a, a team of 30 people is going to try to climb Mount Everest, for example, or any of the other 8,000-meter um, peaks, they would trek in all of their gear, and there'd be porters and, and tons of equipment. And they'd set up a base camp at the, at the glacier at the bottom, and then they would gradually ferry equipment and climbing supplies and food and people up to Camp 1 and Camp 2 and Camp 3, et cetera, until they're finally close enough to make a, uh, make a move for the summit. But the base camp is key to the whole operation, provisioning the base camp, keeping it well ordered, having everything that you need there is the, is the foundation for the success of the climb. Well, you can see where I'm going with this. Right. The liberal arts are the base camp. Uh, I've heard it said that the liberal arts are the base camp to the world. Well, that's a good segue to what I was going to ask, because one of the things that I think is important for people to understand here at Woodbury is we not only have the uh, majors of the, the College of Liberal Arts, and there are five, are five now, mm -hmm. but also you provide a lot of the general education credits as well. And mm -hmm. so I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about that, um, you know, because I think, you know, it sort of gets at what you're, what you're talking about, that while we, you know, people may come here to study filmmaking, for example, they're still going to get, you know, a lot of this good basis, um, this good sort of liberal arts basis mm -hmm. uh, education. So, uh, you know, maybe enlighten us a little bit of, on how that works. Well, absolutely. And we, one of the things that's nice about Woodbury, of course, is that it's so small. It's a community, and that exists on the level of the students, the faculty, the staff, and the interactions between all of them. And so we, we know our colleagues in the other fields pretty well who teach the other majors. And we in the liberal arts offering GE courses really feel a responsibility to our colleagues and their students to provide the types of things that really are relevant to the majors. And so writing, for example, which is my, my home field, uh, of, of course has relevance in, with any of the majors. And the, and the students find that out. Uh, they don't always walk in the door of a, of a freshman-level writing class the first day happy to be there. Uh, but they're usually a lot happier when it's over, not just because it's over, but because uh, they have an idea of why it mattered uh, to them, because it already is starting to matter in, in their majors. And I think you can make that case for all of the other 
departments in the that offer GE courses too, art history and uh, and certainly uh, anything having to do with uh, creativity. Uh, as well, the the literature courses. Mike Sonskin, who uh, teaches uh, some of the lit-based courses, INDS courses, um, does a does a wonderful job of helping students understand uh, how those subjects matter in the context of what they do. Uh, so some of his most committed students are, are are in some of the design fields, like architecture and others. Well, I think um, you know and. and we have wonderful faculty across the board here, and we're not just saying that. I mean, I know it sounds like we're, you know, we, and just to be clear, we're very authentic. So we try not to give uh, marketing uh, quotes, but that kind of was. So I apologize for that. <laughs> but, but, you, but you mean that you were being well, authentic. Well, we think we have wonderful advancement marketing. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. Yes. But um, what I was going to say is you, you the faculty in, in COLA it kind of punches uh, way above its weight in many ways. And, and I, I mean, it, you've got a lot of stars there. You've got, uh, you know, people like Emily Bills, and you mentioned Mike the Poet, mm -hmm. as he's affectionately known, <laughs> That's and right. Linda Dove and yourself. And there's a lot of really, you know, people who have published a lot of work and done a lot of um you know, work in the community and all kinds of, of, of things. So you've got quite a few stars over there. Mm -hmm. And by the way, your emails that you send out weekly have been tremendous. I mean, keeping us in the loop on what's happening. It's a good PR effort. It's, it's great stuff. Well, it's, it's uh, one of my pleasures to be able to brag about what goes on in the college. And there's, as you suggest, there's a lot to, to brag about. Emily's uh, urban studies program is uh, wonderful. Sciences are very strong at, uh, at Woodbury and uh, that's something that I want to raise the profile of, too, in the next three years. Um, we really have an opportunity to take on as a college uh, the issue of sustainability and the lack thereof of sustainability in an urban context like L.A., and so I've been, uh, I'll be working with all of our science faculty and students and the Healthy and Sustainable Campus uh, Committee to, uh, to see what more can be, be done to put science uh, really on the map here at Woodbury. So tell us a little bit more about um, the COLA programs. Well, yeah, I sure, I sure don't want to miss out an opportunity to talk about our, our five majors. Yes. You know, we have politics, we have, we have history, we have writing, we have public safety administration, and we have interdisciplinary studies. Uh, these are all smallish majors, but they're majors that are bound to grow. And uh, the students who are working in those majors uh, just uh, are doing very exciting work and have a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, I believe that, uh, just to not single out one program, but I believe that interdisciplinary studies has a lot of potential. It's a wonderful program uh, chaired by Will McConnell. It, as, as you know, I think it's the nature of the interdisciplinary studies program is that students have an opportunity to invent their own curriculum uh, with the guidance and supervision of faculty members. And so no two interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary studies majors are exactly uh, the same. Um, there are other schools that have uh, programs like that. But it allows for co-creation between the students and the faculty in designing curriculum. And I think one of the things we might experiment with doing is uh, encouraging students to consider more liberal arts-based interdisciplinary studies majors. So we take our five majors and, and we write each one down on an index card and shuffle them and then pull out any two you can think of wonderful ways that there could be synchronicity between those two fields, writing and mm -hmm. politics, uh, science and philosophy. We do offer philosophy courses too. Um, encouraging students to experiment with uh, those combinations within the house of liberal arts, I think, might be fun. You, um, you mentioned the Public Safety Administration, which mm -hmm. is a, a newer program that Got off to a very successful start. I think you have 30-something students in that mm -hmm. program, which is quite high mm -hmm. uh, for Woodbury. I know you haven't started <laughs> in the role yet as, as dean of the college, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on additional programs. 
Well, that, of course, is a long negotiation process that goes through faculty approval and uh, the, the administrative approval. Uh, new programs uh, have to have uh, cost and benefit analysis done. And um, we have some programs in mind, however. Uh, the, there was an environmental studies, urban studies major that was uh, approved, I believe, completely by the faculty process. And then because of some budget constraints, it was it was put on hold. I think maybe now might be the time to revisit that program. Uh, we have the basis for it already in place. Everything's there. Uh, we, we just have to, um, to get it off the launching pad. So that would be the one that would come to mind. Uh, First off. And the timing could not be better for, for a program like that right now. True. True. So I read that you were, and you mentioned it just now, um, you're on the sustainability committee. Mm -hmm. How long has that been around at Woodbury? And um, tell us more about that. It was mandated a few years ago by the previous administration, uh, and I was one of the founding members of that committee, and it's been an interesting ride uh, being on, in that group. Uh, there has been... There have been a number of projects that the committee has sponsored. Uh, for several years, we had a kind of Earth Day fair out in the quad every year. Uh, Mother Earth always showed up on, uh, <laughs> on Earth Day and al always looked good and, and, of course, looked strangely like me, some people, <laughs> some people said. <laughs> so we did that for a few years, and then the committees tried other things. They've partnered with um, civic groups and, in, in one case, a bicycle manufacturer to put on seminars here on campus. Um, we're looking at perhaps bringing in a sustainability-oriented architect uh, to speak in the spring. That's not arranged yet, but we'll, uh, I'll tell you more about it as we get closer. Great. We'd love to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> now, not to put you on the spot a little bit here, but I know you've You've actually funded some scholarships as well, too. For can can you talk a little bit about those? Well, sure, and uh, I'm I'm happy to do that. Actually, I, I believe that um, all of us working in higher education can contribute in that way, according to whatever means we we have. I uh, I, I believe in a and that kind of effort. I mean, I think about uh, what the maintenance people do here. Right. You know, they, they really have done a wonderful job uh, donating money to the, the university. And I, I pers personally believe we should all do that. And I've, I've done that most of my career. Um, I have been initiated now a scholarship for uh, the College of Liberal Arts. I think we're probably going to call it the Liberal Art, the College of Liberal Arts uh, Scholarship. And I've been working with with your team to uh, to set that up. And I'm not sure when the launch date for that will be, but it's in it's in the works. And oh, that's and I'm great. I'm hoping that that will be. Uh, a useful tool for um, admissions to recruit new students. Uh, it'll be students majoring in our majors in the college will be eligible for that scholarship. And uh, I hope that's just the beginning. We appreciate what, you, what you've done, and, and we couldn't have said it better. I wanted to take it back to um, writing, the mm -hmm. writing department. Um, I've heard of them. The writing department. We... We put together a, a very nice, for lack of a better term, profile piece on you several months ago, and we posted it to the news section on our website. Let me let me plug that, woodbury.edu, www.woodbury.edu, slash news. news. Um, and so if you want to see this this piece that sort of outlines Ruben's thoughts on um, writing, I, I, I actually just read it prior to coming in here because I, I wanted to think of good questions asked. Um, and I, I, I love your, um, your thought on, you know, what makes a good writer? How do you become a good writer? Um, what, what skills does it take? Um, I've been writing my entire, well, we all, we've all been writing our entire life, but I was able to fortunately, um, be able to do this for a career and mm -hmm. I love it. Mm -hmm. But, um, if you get writer's block, I mean, what, what, what can you do for those types of, um, you know, blocks that you might have? How do you become a good writer? Well, you know, they, there's an old saying, you, you always specialize in the thing you hate the most. 
<laughs> and of course, I think that was part of my journey to being a writer too, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but I think people find their own passion about writing. And it can come from different places, different sources in them and their own experiences. I, I just had my, my freshman composition students do a project recently called a, a Theory of Writing. So they, they incorporated stories about their own writing experience. And then they had to develop a, what their theory of what writing is or does. And it was interesting to see what they wrote. Uh, most of them emphasized personal expression creativity. Uh, some of them emphasize the importance of communicating clearly with other people and, and using writing and language to, to bring people together and to solve problems in a, in a, in a kind of collaborative uh, way. So I, I think they, those students were right about all of those things. I think that that's where people's motivations can, can come from. Writer's block is a is a funny thing, of course, and we, we you've you had it, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I always share with students what uh, what uh, various uh, well known writers have done to overcome their writer's block. You know, Ernest Hemingway would would write standing up often, which uh, if you read in flight magazines uh, on airplanes these days, we're all supposed to be doing. Right, it's the new smoking. <laughs> yeah, sitting. that's right. Yeah. Sitting is the new smoking. But I think it was fairly novel back then. And, and then I, I love to tell him the story about Marcel Proust, who was a prolific writer, prolific um, early 20th century novelist. And, and uh, he would write in Paris in the wintertime. And as you know, it gets kind of chilly in Paris in the wintertime. And, and he had an unheated writing room. And he would uh, go into the room and he would strip naked and hand his clothes out the door to his servant with instructions uh, not to let him out of the room until he had slipped a certain number of pages under the door. I think that's true. Uh, that story is true, but it makes a pretty good so. story anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, people find their, their own way to deal with that demon. Right. And, uh, yeah, I guess the, the obvious is just to step away from it for a while and then right. come back. And it looks so different. And you're like, what? Why did I write that? That, that sounds horrible. <laughs> I always do that. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's physiological, you know, because when I'm stuck on something and I, I get up and walk away and go empty the, the uh, dryer or do something that, that around the house, I always have ideas and I always yeah. know where to go when I get back. And my, my theory is that it just has to do with, with uh, circulation yeah. and, and blood flowing to my yeah. brain. Yeah. Speaking of writing, I think it, it would be help, helpful for you to maybe speak a little bit about the professional writing program because I think, uh, you know, for a lot of people, you know, everyone's heard of creative writing. You know, and they and they they understand that what that is, but when they hear professional writing, it sounds a little clinical, <laughs> and I think you know we, certainly we understand that what what you're trying to do in that program is is give people access to a variety of different types of of writing, um, which I think is really important. But I, I wonder if maybe you can talk a little bit about the program just to kind of clarify mm -hmm. it for people. Absolutely. What, what we're looking at is about a 50-50 split in the curriculum between what is traditional creative writing, like um, fiction, memoir, poetry, script writing, uh, and then 50% um, more technical, professional, what we sometimes call hard skills writing. And that would include areas like uh, grant writing, tech writing, maybe business writing. It's all the uh, stuff we do. Yeah, the stuff you guys do, exactly. And uh, writing in the health sciences. Uh, Matt Bridgewater's teaching a class in the spring in legal and policy writing. Uh, oh, which boy. would be great for people going into government. Mm -hmm. Be a very nice compliment to a political science degree, for example. And so this is what the students seem to want. Um, hard skills writing on one side, workplace writing, and creative writing. You know, we quite frankly tell prospective students that, uh, that you'll have uh, writing skills that'll help you get 
get a job right away uh, while you're waiting for your blockbuster novel to be picked up or your, <laughs> or your screenplay to be produced. That and, is great. And so I think it's a good combo, the, those two things. It's, it very much reflects uh, what was happening in the, in the, the USC um, master's program in writing, which was also pretty much the same split between creative writing and, and professional writing. Uh, what else would I say about that? Um, again, it, it reflects what students want, but we, it also reflects what we think they can use. I think that's uh, the other piece of it. I am very curious, and this could be political in nature. Uh, oh, good. Why, why aren't the communications classes under COLA? There are, there's a history that I don't know to why the various departments are housed in the different schools. This was all before my, my time. I've been here since 2010, and I, I don't really know the answer to that, to be quite uh, frank. Uh, what I do know is that we have a ni very nice working relationship with the communication department. Mm -hmm. uh, I meet with uh, Jennifer fairly, fairly regularly, and we, we talk about what's going on in our curriculums, and uh, we uh, allow students to take some communications classes and count that toward our major and minor. So there's a, there's a good working relationship. Uh, we also count a couple of film uh, courses uh, toward our major and minor uh, as well. And of course, I think that 7500 magazine that communication um, uh, sponsors is, uh, is outstanding. Uh, I see their um, arts and entertainment magazine, 7500, as a very nice complement to our literary magazine, Mariah Literary Magazine. And, and I think students see that too. And we often the same students will, will work on the staff of, of both. So I, can't, I don't know the answer to your question, but I'm, okay. I'm sure there are politics back there. <laughs> it's the kind of probing <laughs> questions that we ask here on Studio <laughs> 7500. You're hard-edged journalists. <laughs> true. Just circling back to professional writing for a minute, because on, on an early Earlier show, we had Tricia Lopez mm -hmm. on, who's, who's a professional writing student, mm -hmm. and also the, the editor-in-chief of Mariah, the literary publication, which is fantastic. Uh, you can um, go back and listen to that episode. Uh, it's actually posted on our website, uh, so check it out. But one of the things she mentioned, and you touched on this earlier, mm -hmm. was that in professional writing... Um, and she got a big kick out of this, and I think it drew her to the program, is she did have the opportunity to help build the program. Mm -hmm. And this sort of speaks to one of the, what we we like to say is one of the core values of, of the university. It technically isn't, but uh, <laughs> the idea that our students are more actively involved in their education. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, talk a little bit about that and about the process that that you undertook. You did address it earlier, but I wondered if you know you might be able to talk a little bit about that, to, just for any prospective students listening to understand how they might be involved in shaping mm -hmm. their education. Well, I I vaguely remember what Tricia had to say, and I the way I understood it was that uh, she was in a tech writing class that I think was taught by Rich Matson in the writing department. And they, they put the course on still pause part of the way through the course and then collaborated, instructor and students, on redesigning at least a part of the course for the rest of the semester. And I, I know that that made a big impression on Tricia, and it's precisely the kind of thing that, that we wanted the students to be able to do. Um, in writing courses, of course, they're, they're workshop experiences, and so the students are producing their own work and then sharing it with each other and running it through a critique process. And so there's always a give and take uh, between students and other students and between the students and the faculty. Uh, so there's a, there's a kind of collaborative revision process that's always going on in writing workshops. And so that's, that's the kind of collaborative experience that I am mostly involved in. But uh, certainly the INDS program, which uh, I put a, also a lot of emphasis on, is, uh, is really the, the poster child of that, that kind of co-creative activity. I'm going to take it to you. You mentioned you were on a sabbatical mm -hmm. last semester. Last semester. Last year. I took last an entire year. year. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it was a good experience. Uh, I've 
uh, I slated a project to complete for that uh, time, and uh, I didn't complete it, of course, which is uh, sometimes happens with writing processes. You know, art is long and time is short, as the saying goes. And but I, I was working on a book that I've is a long term project of, of mine, uh, dealing with what I was talking about earlier, representations of, of pre contact Indian peoples and ruins in southwestern literature, and uh, made some nice progress on it. It's a, it's a real luxury to have time to write. Um, some people are able to you know, write on the bus or write between classes or uh, use every little tiny snippet of time. But uh, I'm one of those people, unfortunately, who needs big pieces of time to to get done what I want to get done. Um, so that was a, a very enriching experience. And I, I, I've been trying to con- cultivate the habit of writing in coffee houses, too, because it makes me feel young. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and so I, I, I did that more, too. And I actually fi- I realize now why people enjoy it. There's something very stimulating about working around other people, um, because it, for me, at least, it, it tends to make me want to look busy. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. Oh, I had the impression you liked working in an isolated environment when it's snowing outside and you can't go anywhere. <laughs> well, I've, I've done that too, as, as you know, <laughs> kind, kind of kind of the shining type experience. Well, and speaking of that, we've heard this story, and so it's too good not to share. Oh dear. So I know at one point in your career you were doing a was it a fellowship at a a. Was it a national park? Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, many people don't know this, but a lot of the the um, public lands uh, offer artists and writers uh, residency opportunities. And so the Angeles National Forest and the uh, San Gabriel Mountains National Monument now uh, offer an annual writer's artist's residency. And so you apply, and if you're selected, you get to spend a couple of weeks up in the mountains, and they provide you a place to live, and you're provided with uh, isolation and time to write. Uh, I think they they want you, your writing, to somehow engage the place uh, that you're in. So I applied in 2016 and was selected as one of the the artist writers in residency, and and so they let me live in uh, in a lodge up in Big Pine. I think it's called the Big Pine Lodge. And so it was, it's a beautiful old 1920s stone and timber building. You can picture it. It has a huge hall uh, in the center part of the building and then offices in one end and an apartment upstairs in the other end. So I was uh, given that apartment to, to live in and, and write and it was perfect. You know, it had a rustic fireplace and a big desk and a dictionary on it and, and a window looking out over the pine trees and it was just absolutely ideal. Well, I got all settled and took out my computer and all of my, my books that I brought and, and had dinner and went to bed the first night. I was suddenly awakened, startled awake by something. I don't know what it was. And as soon as I was awake, I heard the sound of a child crying. I mean, it was very distinct. Now, the only thing that mattered with that was that I was the only one in the building, and I knew that I was the only one in the building. But for some reason, I went back to sleep. I don't know if that was a sensible thing to do, <laughs> but I, I went back to sleep. And then maybe a couple hours later, I, was, I woke up with a start again. And I, this time, it was not a child crying, but there were three footsteps on the stair leading up to the apartment. One a footstep went up one step, another one, and a third one, and then stopped. And then I heard the, the footsteps going back down again. So again, I went. I went uh, back to sleep, and uh, unbelievable. This and, is the second time I've heard this story. The first time I was screaming. So yeah, this is, and, and he tells it exactly the same way. So you know it happened. Well, the thing about it was is that uh, I never heard the, the the crying child again. But every night I was in that apartment, I heard the three steps going up the stairs. And I, again, I awoke suddenly for apparently no reason. And there were the steps. Every night that happened. And now you, I, I, I believe you 
you spoke to some people <laughs> and they they corroborated that they oh yeah that's uh so and so well, right. that, oh my yeah, gosh, I haven't heard this part. Well, Big Pine uh, is is right at right outside of Wrightwood, a tiny little quaint mountain town up in the San Gabriel Mountains. And and I was near the end of my stay. I was uh, I was working in the afternoon, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. No one had ever visited me, and a knock on the door in the middle of the day. And it was uh, it was a very nice man, local guy, and uh, he said, I'd, "I I heard that you were here and that you were writing about the area." Uh, I checked this book out of the library for you. It tells you all about the history of the area. I mean, it was just very friendly. Wow. I mean, who who checks out a book for you? That's amazing. And uh, so I invited him in. We chatted for a while. And I, I just thought to myself, you know, he's the guy to tell about the footsteps and the crying child. And so I told him this, uh, the whole story. And, and he, he seemed uh, to take it completely in stride. And he, and he said to me, oh, they're here all right. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, Dr. Ellis stays the rest of his two weeks. And how many of you would have been that shit out of there? <laughs> that's, that's the courage. Well, I got, I got to tell you, there was writing to get done. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I love that story. Let's, um, and that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Because I think, I think it also helps humanize you. <laughs> In a way, you That's know. It's got to be done. <laughs> so but, brave. But I, I also wanted to just note, you know, Doug Kramer was the is the mm. outgoing um, dean, and and you know, I you've been here since you said 2010, so you've been here a, a while under his leadership. And I wonder maybe if you could speak a little bit about his legacy here. He's been here quite a while. I think it's important for us to recognize his contribution. I absolutely agree. Um, Doug, when I first came here, was so welcoming to me and uh, just uh, made me feel right at home from the beginning. And he really did a wonderful job leading the the college for many many years. I believe he was dean for twelve years, right? And was uh, was in other faculty positions be, before that. And he he really put the his stamp on the College of Liberal Arts through his commitment to interdisciplinary study. I mean that continues to define everything that we're about, you know, how the different fields of study interact with each other. What does, how do, what does writing contribute to history? What does history contribute to writing, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that is his uh, legacy in terms of, of his professional legacy. On a personal level, Doug is just a wonderful human being. He's a genuinely good man, a uh, kind man, and uh, he, he, He'll be back. You know, he's coming back as faculty, so he's not going too far. He's on sabbatical. You'll be his boss. Well, (laughs) I'm not sure that's in the spirit of interdisciplinary study, to put it that way. I had the pleasure of, uh, because Doug is also a deacon, so I had the pleasure of um, listening to one of his sermons. So that was wonderful out in Pasadena. Oh, fantastic. At St. Elizabeth? Yes. Yeah. He's a great, great speaker. Um, And yeah, a great man. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I agree. Now, he'll be missed in that role, but I'm glad he's still going to be uh, on the faculty. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate getting kind of a, a, a preview, I, I guess you could say, of, of some of what we can expect for COLA. It sounds like, um, you know, you're going to bring a lot of energy and excitement in, into that, that, Definitely. Uh, that role, and we're excited to see what happens. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I'm I'm going to channel my identity as an old late night television guest and and take the opportunity to plug my upcoming book. So I have a a book of poems coming out in February. It, it's called Formula, and I'll also be uh, doing a reading uh, from that book and some other materials through the Mariah Literary Magazine um, First Press Reading Series in April. I don't know the exact uh, date. But uh, the book project was one of the other things that I completed on sabbatical, and I'm, uh, I'm quite excited about that. And um, I look forward with, to sharing it with readers. Tell us a little bit about it. Um, what is, it, it, it's, it's, you know, a book of poems, but, you know, we're, we're, tell, give us a little bit more. 
Well, these days, you, you know, most uh, most poetry books uh, have a kind of cohesive theme that tie them together. And uh, years and years ago, they were uh, miscellanies. They were just a collection of poems that weren't necessarily related to each other. But, but uh, formula is all based on the idea of performative language. In other words, language that, that causes something to happen. Mm. Um, spells are performative language for uh, Harry Potter fans uh, mm -hmm. out there. And I got interested in this when I, when I read James Moody's uh, collection of uh, Cherokee or Ananunwea um, uh, spells. He was an anthropologist who lived among the Cherokee Indians in the 19th century. And of course, back then, um, most uh, Euro-Americans were convinced that Indians were going to die out. Uh, that has not happened. Um, but he was one of them. And so he was very busy to record all of, the, all of these rituals and formulas and spells uh, while they still could be recorded. And they're, they're interesting and actually really beautiful uh, when it comes right down to it. Spells for convincing a, a, an animal that you're hunting to al allow you to kill it, for example. And uh, spells for um, doing harm to enemies or good to people you like, and you, you name it. The, these, this kind of magic was integral to traditional Cherokee life, and and we have elements of that in all cultures. You know, when when um, someone is getting married, a couple is getting married, and the the minister says, "I pronounce you man and wife," uh, that that's a formula. That's performative language. It's words that make something happen. And so all of the poems are either spells, if you want to put it that way, or about the fact that we write language to make things happen. Oh, Where can uh, listeners uh, get the book? Well, the release date is February 22nd, okay. and it, uh, it, it, it's available through Finishing Line Press, their website, for advanced sales now. And I think after it's released, it'll be on uh, Amazon, too. Oh, and we'll definitely profile that on uh, our website. It, when... it sounds absolutely fascinating. It really does. Oh, thanks. Yeah. For, and for those of us who uh, live in L.A., you should know that the very, the very final poem deals with how to get rid of orange traffic cones. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That is great. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate great, it. Great well, to chat with you and learn more about what... Uh, What's going to happen in the near future with COLA? And well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And, and again, I love your show and am very appreciative for, of all the work you do in advancement for us. Well, we look forward to talking with you again. Mm -hmm.